0: Welcome to the Carl Bart Podcast. I'm your host, Corey Tuttle, and my guest today is Reverend Professor Mark Lindsay. Professor Lindsay is the Joan Monroe Professor of Historical Theology at Trinity College, Melbourne, Australia, um, and he's also the author of Reading Auschwitz with Bart: The Holocaust as Problem and Promise for Bartian Theology. Professor Lindsay, thank you so much for
1: joining me. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here.
0: Yeah, when uh, when one of your friends' dad is a Bart scholar and <laughs> he is in town, um, I, I felt like I couldn't miss this opportunity. So this is going to be fun, and it's really cool to. I've never, hey, I've never done a Bart podcast in person, um, so this is the first breaking new ground. Yeah, exactly, and get to do it on campus for the first time. It's just in the office space. I'm actually utilizing this for what I've always wanted to do it for. <laughs> so. Fun. Well, let's start with a little bit of a get to know you. Um, I'm wondering if you could tell me how did you discover Carl Bart?
1: I discovered Carl Bart to be honest purely by accident. Uh, I have a strange. Um, I had a strange route into Bart studies. Uh, my honors dissertation, weirdly, was uh, in popular culture. Uh, <laughs> on on beetles and fashion photography of the 1960s not (laughs) not the most usual uh ah i can see the connecting points right away um i put that to one side went away uh, and spent some time thinking about what i wanted to do my my phd on and during my undergraduate studies had been focusing a lot on uh, both church history and uh, modern German history, particularly the history of the Holocaust. Mm. So I started to read around uh, that area, looking um, at scholarship on the uh, German Kirchenkampf of the 1930s. That took me into um, reading about Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and through Bonhoeffer, I became aware of this. This is a person called Karl Barth, um, and so I simply started to read. Mm. Um, this was before I began work on the PhD. It was purely out of interest, um, and as I started to think about what I wanted my doctoral dissertation to be on, it, um, my 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 interests in in Holocaust history modern German church history, and then this, this uh, strangely fascinating figure of Barth started all to come together. Uh, and obviously anyone who has read uh, the Bush biography will will know that towards the end of his life, uh, Bart makes a comment along the lines of, uh, if, if you want to talk about me, you need to read me, uh, if you want to write about me, you need to read me completely. Uh, so, very naively, I took him at his word uh, and and simply set myself a writing uh, a reading project for the first year of my PhD, which was to start in nineteen oh nine, and read my way through the Bartian corpus, which I did. Um, that was how I got into Bart studies. It was it was naive. It was uneducated. Um, and it was really purely by happenstance. Was it translated by then? Some of it was, some yeah. of it wasn't. <laughs> That's a busy year. It was a very busy year, especially because uh, I was also um, combining my reading of Bart, of course, with my reading around uh, Holocaust historiography. Uh, as far back as 1971. Um, two American sociologists had made the point that by the turn of the century more would have been written on the Holocaust than on any other subject in history I don't know if that's actually true but nonetheless it makes the point that there is a vast vast corpus of literature um, just on Schoah so to to do that alongside my reading of Bart meant that I was um I had my work cut out in that first year of the PhD. That sounds like it. Um, I'm also someone
0: who came to BART by way of Bonhoeffer. Um, definitely started there. And most of my Bartian interests be- just began as uh, whenever Bonhoeffer talks about, speaks about Bart or Bartian theology, I kind of need to know what's going on there in the text. But it was just that for, for quite a while. And then I moved, moved over to Bart. Um, as you were. Thinking, I'm going to do a PhD focusing on Holocaust studies and, and, and theology. What made you choose Bart over Bonhoeffer? Was there any any question in your mind that you would
1: maybe do Bonhoeffer, or was it always just Bart? No, it was always Bart hmm. uh, because it became obvious to me really quickly uh, that there were two sets of scholars who were reading the material incorrectly. So on the one hand. Uh, the the Holocaust historians and even the the, the historians of the Church struggle uh, were clearly, it seemed to me, not reading Barth theologically. They they were not understanding uh, the theology that he was writing and preaching at the time, uh, and so there were a whole lot of um, I think misinterpretations of Bart's political stance during the 30s and 40s that was coming out through the historical uh, material I was reading. Then on the flip side, I, I kept reading theologians who were looking at Bart's material, who were not contextualising it appropriately. Mm. So I wanted to try and bring the two together and, and simply ask the question, If it was the case, which I believed it was, that Karl Barth was um, a strident opponent, not only of National Socialism, but also of its underlying anti-Semitism and and the Holocaust in in general, what was the rationale for that opposition? Uh, Because it clearly could not simply be some sort of vague humanitarian principle, there must be some theological rationale for why he took the position that he did. So what was that? Mm. Uh, And and very quickly, that led me into um, an exploration of the way in which uh, Barth's understandings of both revelation and election started to shift and and shape his attitude towards Nazism. Mm at the time that was a, that was a project that I hadn't seen anyone else do up until that point Well, let's start with uh, revelation between those two topics um
0: you write uh, quite a bit about Emil Fackenheim um could you just give me like a brief who is he um and
1: how has he contributed to post- Holocaust theology so Emil Fackenheim uh, was uh, a Canadian. Um, uh, Jewish scholar Uh, originally he was he was actually for a time before he moved to Canada he was um, uh, he was imprisoned in Sachsenhausen uh, briefly as a child and then emigrated after the war to um, to Canada his greatest uh, claim or, or notoriety perhaps is um, in positing the uh, the 614th commandment. Okay? He uh, proposed that, um, I think, formally in, a, in about 19, um, 1984, but he'd been thinking of it uh, for many years before that. Uh, the 614th commandment essentially says that uh, Jews are prohibited uh, from granting Hitler a posthumous victory. Mm. Uh, so what would that mean? That would mean forgetting the lessons of the Holocaust and allowing uh, the uh, allowing situations to to get to the point where that might be um, a realistic recurrence mm. in history. Um, so he. Uh, Let, let me go back a step. Um, Elie Wiesel, um, the, the Nobel Laureate author of Night, um, mm-hmm. um, made the comment that for about 20 years, no one said anything about the Holocaust um, from neither the Jewish side nor the Christian side. Um, from the Christian side, That can perhaps be explained simply by, um, on the one hand, uh, an unpreparedness to accept that the Holocaust actually has anything to say to the church at all. Mm. Um, Secondly, perhaps um, a a more visceral sense of um, of guilt and complicity, and therefore we don't want to talk about it. Um, so it's instructive I think that the uh, many of the first uh, church statements about guilt including the Stuttgart declaration of guilt in 1945 don't mention the Holocaust whatsoever mm. uh, they don't mention uh, the church's guilt in uh, the long-standing tradition of anti-semitism that made something like the Holocaust possible in Germany um so there are there are certain Christian reasons why the churches didn't say anything. From the Jewish perspective, as far as Gusell was concerned, the reason there was no Jewish voice um, for 15, 20 years was because of the just the, the degree of trauma and shock that, that they were still experiencing. Mm. When Jewish theologians did start to engage with the Holocaust, they did it in a number, in, a, in, in a wide variety of ways, um, from a strong affirmation of God's providential care for the people of Israel, um, on the one hand, to strong repudiations of God's sovereignty um, and and indeed, a rejection of any sense of covenantal belonging. We see that in someone like uh, Richard Rubinstein mm-hmm. from Pittsburgh. Um, Backenheim is interesting because he's a, fundamentally a philosopher and he takes an almost Adorno like approach in asking the question is, is philosophical thought? now so fundamentally ruptured in the wake of the Holocaust that we can actually not do philosophy or even theology any longer. Mm. Uh, In the end, he decides that it is possible, but it's only possible if you understand and take seriously the rupturing effect of the Holocaust on both Judaism and Christianity. Um, and I think he's really interesting and helpful because he does, from a Jewish perspective, insist that uh, that the Shoah is as much a, a rupturing event for, for the churches and for Christian belief as it is for Judaism. Mm. Um, and, of course, the way you respond to that as a Christian... Um, it can be can be multifaceted, and and and, and uh, I, I think Faginheim poses some highly provocative questions hmm. for Christian belief, um, yeah. uh, which which are not always easy to, to to wrestle with.
0: Yeah, the the word rupture definitely reminds me of obviously Barthian Revelation uh, Bonhoeffer the disruptor is what he calls uh, Jesus at one point. So like this end breaking that sort of changes everything the way, the way we do things, the way that we do theology, the way we have to um, live, live life in general. Part of my next question is, does this mean that the Holocaust is in some way like a a, a revelatory event?
1: So I've wrestled with that question because I, um, I want to take seriously um, the concept that uh, that the Holocaust does break into our uh, our forms and our structures of belief. Um, partly because I think unless we unless we do that deconstructive work, mm-hmm. um, Christian theology will always. Be at risk of falling back into uh, the tired old anti Semitic supersessionary tropes. Uh, We need to find ways of moving beyond that. And and we we won't move beyond that unless we reckon with the seriousness uh, of the Holocaust for for Christians as well as for Jews. Um, But if, if it's going to have material impact on the way in which we our theology uh, what sort of event is it? what yeah. category of event does it does it take does it, does it have for us um, if we go back to 1933 and 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 but uh, yeah. you know, the theological existence today mm-hmm. widely um, criticized, at the time and since for not being nearly decisive and strident enough in its opposition to Hitler, and particularly uh, at the time to the imposition of the um, the Aryan laws and and, and simply to um, Hitler's seizure of power about six months earlier. And the reason it gets slammed is because of that one little line where Bart says, We need to continue to do theology as if nothing had happened. Mm -hmm. Uh, And most commentators since the end of the Second World War who've bothered to look at that read that as though Bart is saying nothing much of significance has happened. the church doesn't need to worry about what's going on politically and socially. We can just remain in our own you know, ecclesial uh, insularity. I don't think that's what Bart was saying. I think he was wanting to push back against the uh, the, the the liberalizing versions of the doctrine of Revelation that could see in the advent of Nazism and Hitler a new revelatory event of God hmm. yeah. uh, and 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 you see that starting to happen um, even through the 1920s um, yeah. Hitler is a new Messiah, mein Kampf is the new Bible this is a moment of of awakening for the German people. Uh, that has a divine imprint on it. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, and this is being, um, as you know, this is being promulgated, not simply by the the Nazi ideologists, but it's being promulgated by by well-credentialed theologians, Mm -hmm. uh, people like Kittel and Althaus and Hirsch. So Barth's response to that so we need to do theology as though nothing had happened, is to say, actually, the, the, the one revelatory event from which we take our direction is the word of God incarnate mm-hmm. in Jesus Christ. Which then becomes, of course, um, embedded in the first article of the Barnum Declaration a year later. That having been said, it then becomes really difficult to consider something like the Holocaust Mm -hmm. in the same breath as Revelation from a Barting perspective. So what do we do with it? How do we we embed the lessons of the Holocaust in the way in which we do our theology um, without it Drifting into reading the Holocaust as some sort of natural theological um, event. Um, That's the that was the project I set myself in reading Auschwitz with Bart to see if it was possible to find within Bart's theology a way of theologizing the Holocaust appropriately without it becoming. truly a revelatory event Mm -hmm. Uh, I think the the conclusion I came to was that um, uh, it's not really possible to do that Um, and even if you look at the um, the secular parables of light and, and the secular witnesses to the Word of God even then on the four criteria that Barth sets out um, in, um, I think it's section 69, paragraph 69. Mm-hmm. Um, the Holocaust fails on two of the four yeah. as being a, a, a secular witness. Um, so that leaves me still with this question, how do we theologize the, the Holocaust appropriately in a mm-hmm. way that does make material difference to our, to our structures and content of belief? Uh, I, I'm convinced it needs to be done, yeah. but I also don't want to uh, um, violate what I think was was Bart's um, 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 genius insight, really. Yeah, um, contextually.
0: Hmm. Uh, you mentioned about the theological existence today, the doing theology as nothing has happened, and how that is essentially. Um, Almost, it seems, it's not backhanded, but it, it's a plea to not do natural theology. It is yeah. uh, that we are we are only getting our theology from the word of God in Christ. Um, I'm wondering if you could just give a brief few minutes on natural theology. Um, what is Bart's uh, hang-up with natural theology, I guess? Um, what's what's What are the dangers of it, um, and how does he seek to overcome it?
1: Let me begin by saying that, um, despite the um, the caricature, Bart was not always as um, stridently opposed as he became. Mm. So the early uh, his early years in Southern View, um, with uh, the advent of World War One. He was, in some of his sermons, able to see, he believed, the hand of God in um, uh, in the events of the war that were taking place. Um, he moves away from that position fairly quickly, but nonetheless, for the first couple of years of the war, he's still uh, leaning into some of the... Um, some of the training and education that he received at places like my book um, that would allow him to see God at work in Mm. in the war. Um, But once he starts his project with Teneisen, which ends up with uh, uh, with the commentary on Romans, and once he starts reading seriously people like Kierkegaard, I think what makes the difference for him is that recognition of, if you like, the utter Godness of God, that if it is God we're talking about, um, there there is that uh, infinite qualitative distinction mm-hmm. uh, between the creator and creation. So how do you find a way of um, encountering that God, in a way that um in a way in which god retains god's subjectivity mm-hmm. god remains god even while being encounterable by us um we can never have unmediated access to the revelation of god without mm-hmm. and part of Part of his problem with with natural theology is that um, there is a presupposition, there's a presumption that our encounter with God can somehow become unmediated. Or um, but that dissolves the creator creature distinction. So even in um even in the person of Jesus. Christ, uh, and he starts to lay this out really clearly in the Göttingen Dogmatics. Uh, we must be able to encounter God in Christ in a way that it's possible also not to encounter Him. Uh, mm-hmm. So there is, as as Bruce McCormack puts it, really helpfully, um, the the veil that covers the revelation of God he is never lifted entirely mm. It becomes transparent yeah. perhaps yeah. by faith. But it's never lifted, it's never lifted off entirely. Um, so that it is possible both to um to meet Jesus and like Peter yeah. by revelation, by re- acknowledge him as mm. Messiah. But it's equally possible in fact probably more normal to meet jesus and simply meet the carpenter from nazareth mm, yeah um so but um um i hesitate to say project but his 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 emphasis heavily in uh in the 20s um and 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 on is to articulate ways in which God can remain entirely God um, and yet still meet us in our own um, human form in a way that is both properly revelatory of God without God being anything other than God, but also without sliding into um, an unmediated of humanity Hmm.
0: bar seems to um, also indicate that that being into natural theology being a natural theologian was sort of uh an inroad towards being a nazi
1: um yeah that's right and then how are those things related largely i think because uh of what i was saying before that um there was a strongly Lutheran um, a tendency towards seeing um, revelatory possibilities uh, outside the person of Christ, um, and this has a has a backstory through um, uh, not only nineteenth-century liberal Protestantism, but but also through the uh, um, post-enlightenment romantic, uh, romanticism. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, seemed, it just happens to be the case that that many of the um, uh, leading uh, Protestant voices that either formed the Deutsche Christen um, in the 1920s or even without Formerly joining the Dr. Christian became uh, vocal advocates Mm. for the National Socialist program, were or had been Lutherans Mm. Um, and had been prepared to speak about um, particularly german revelatory moments yeah um this you see something of this going back to david strauss's life of jesus where in that he um he, he speaks about the need to write to write a life of jesus that that is specifically for uh the deutsche Hoch. this trajectory of wanting to articulate Christianity in particularly German, specifically German form, Mm -hmm. um, carries through. And and it it is more prevalent in a a Lutheran tradition than a Reformed tradition, Mm -hmm. Um, but it allows um, uh, people like Althaus, like like Hirsch, uh, to look at, the the advent of national socialism, mm. particularly after the trauma of World War One, and see this as some sort of resurrection of Germany's glory yeah. through the uh, through the leadership of uh, um, of a charismatic messiah figure, um, and that this then must be um, symbolic of God's providential care. For the German people, um, this becomes programatized and formalized in the Deutsche Christen, mm. um, but also even in um, in uh, in the Ansbach Declaration, which is the response uh, to barman in which it is very clear that the proponents of those views see revelation taking place in the historical moment, in the events of the seizure of power, Mm -hmm. um, in in the way in which uh, the National Socialist Program is being um, 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 pushed out through, through the uh, through the nation and through the institutions of the nation, um, these are these are moments of of uh, of glory, of resurrection, hope, of um, mm-hmm. uh, of seeing God at work, raising up Germany to its place of rightful stature in the world, mm-hmm. which can only happen um, under the leadership uh, of of the of the new messiah for the new Israel, mm. which is Germany. Um, mm. but sees a number of his earlier colleagues, people like Gogarten, uh, Brunner, yeah. Bultmann, being prepared to um, play with the idea of natural revelation natural mm-hmm. theology but in the late 20s early 30s to an extent that he sees in them the risk that they will go down the deutsche Christian path
0: mm-hmm.
1: now in the end only gogarten does but and, and he's forced to write a sort of apologetic letter to bookman saying i'm sorry um I, I got it wrong you've not gone there but you could have yeah you could have given your your um, your preparedness to make space for the revelation of god outside the person of jesus hmm.
0: how does providence work with that i guess i'm, I'm thinking you know I come from an american context god bless america god, god. and any when that america gets the people in the churches that i've attended are ready very quickly ready to say oh god has blessed us god has done this sort of thing I, i'm sort of seeing this sort of uh like this seems like a form of natural theology to look at the things that are happening and say look god is championing us i'm wondering how just are there any any events outside maybe let's say the cross or uh <laughs> within 2000 years that we can look to and say this is clearly god's working or like how do how does our understanding of providence work I guess
1: I think that I think we have to allow for God to be at work mm-hmm. in in historical events. Um if if we if we don't and, and I'm speaking here from the perspective of uh someone in a in a broadly Catholic Anglican tradition for whom um the the authority of the early ecumenical councils is not simply because they happened to be decisions taken by the church before the church divided, but because I believe actually that the spirit of God was at work in those deliberations, Hmm. even despite the political machinations that are going on behind the scenes. Um, So for me, Nicaea, Constantinople, Chalcedon, these are providential events under the leadership of the spirit of God um, that are clearly well beyond the cross and that are clearly embedded within um, world historical process. Um, So I have no doubt that there are moments in history where you have to where you have to talk in terms of uh, god providence and sovereignty making itself manifest yeah Um, i would also say um although i i I recognize the um the, the political sensitivities around this i would i would also say that i see that providence at work um, in the recreation of israel in 1948 hmm. my so my problem my, my my problem is not so much the idea of providence my problem would be when you when you attach god's providential care Um, to one particular group over another Hmm, and say um, there must be some divine sovereignty at work here leading this particular group of people to this particular end Mm -hmm. because They are in some sort of privileged place within God's plan. Um, And the reality is that's exactly the view that the Deutsche Christen took that there was something particular to the German people that meant they were instruments of God in a way that no other people was. When it, when it flips over into that sort of language, um, I think we have some deep concerns. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, so Bart is, is very concerned with the uh, the natural theology route that the Deutsche Christians are taking. Does that ever work the opposite direction? Are there ever any um, dialectical theologians
1: that are Deutsche Christians that we know of? Well, Gurga would be the most obvious. Okay. Um I mean he's he 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 toys with Nazism okay. uh, in a way that the others don't. Um certainly um n- 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 neither Bultmann nor Brunner ever go down that path, hmm. um, even though, as I say, Bart was concerned that they might. Um uh, but they remain steadfastly opposed um, okay. to, to the national socialist agenda uh, although interestingly um, uh, Bart and, and brunner, brunner of course is 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 swiss as 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 bart was so they have the capacity for some distance okay. from what's going on um they do take um interestingly different perspectives on the whole question of uh, the church's response to the jewish persecution under nazism Uh, so in 1941 um, at the wibkingen conference the 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 swiss church's um, relief agency uh, for jewish refugees um, in which both Brunner and Bart were were engaged, uh, they they had their annual annual conference. I think it was in November of that year, and the text under discussion for their studies um, was uh, was from John, um, uh, uh, the Gospel of John. Salvation is from the juice, mm-hmm. and um, both Brunner and Bart were insistent that the swiss churches must provide material aid and assistance to any jewish refugees Mm. but for brunner he wanted to exegete um, that passage from john as salvation came from the jews Mm. but said it's got to still be present tense salvation continues to come from the jews uh, and and he went so far as to say, I I can't talk theology with anyone who exegetes John like that. Yeah. Um, so you know, even there, they um, Brunner is very much um, an opponent of of Nazism, mm. just as just as um, adamantly as as Bart was. But they exegete their theological reasons differently. Mm. Okay,
0: yeah. I wanted I had that question in my mind because I thought, man, that should that should be the the elevator pitch for dialectical theology. If that's the case, yeah. <laughs> you will not be a Nazi if you do theology this that's way. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, let's shift gears a little bit um, back to the actual to the Holocaust and to Bart's writing. You um, you write a little bit about Das Niktika and and uh, uh, radical evil. I, th- I think is is how you term it in the book um I have not read on Das Niktige other than your book um so I'm wondering if you could just uh elaborate a little bit on it what is Das Niktige? um where do we find it in Bart's work and then
1: yeah uh, just a little overview so um, das Niktige, um nothingness really is, is probably as good a translation as anything um it's a section um, um, on the problem of evil um, in uh, uh, volume 3 3, uh, which Bart writes around about 1953 from memory. Mm. Um, so it's eight or so years after the Holocaust. Um, and um, what's fascinating for me is that uh, in this very extensive problem, very discussion of the problem of evil. Mm-hmm. Having been as um, engaged as he was in the opposition to Nazism, in speaking out specifically and repeatedly against its anti-Semitism, uh, in being um, a, someone who provided a material um, assistance uh, to Jews and to Jewish refugees. Um, he never once mentions it mm-hmm. in in the whole excursus on evil. He never mentions it, um, which I think is uh, it's both a surprising and a regrettable um, omission. Mm-hmm. He talks about the Lisbon earthquake. But he doesn't talk about the Holocaust, wow. um, and I've never quite understood why. Um, the The only reason I can I can come up with uh, is because he doesn't want to grant the Holocaust that sort of um, uh, determinative uh, status or the way in which he does theology that I was talking about earlier as something that I think he actually needs to have. Mm -hmm. Um, It it could, at a more charitable reading, it could be that like so many other philosophers and theologians, um, it did take 15, 20 years to allow the um, the traumatic effect of the Holocaust actually to take um, to take root and, and to become part of of one's discourse. Uh, it, it could it could simply be that it needed more time and that mm. perhaps had Bart um, written 3-3 three, three, 10 years down the track from when he did, maybe it would have been there. Mm. Uh, maybe the Holocaust would have figured more prominently uh, but it, but it doesn't. And um, even later in later volumes, uh, when he talks about the the state of Israel, mm-hmm. and he talks about um, the the people of Israel, both biblical and post-biblical, as being um, covenant partners of God. Uh, in his section on providence in in volume four he speaks about the role of the Jews in God's providential care and even then only ever alludes to the holocaust with in the most oblique terms. Mm. So even even had he written Dust about the section on destiny later in his life, I'm still not convinced he would have spoken about it. Mm. And I think that's a I think that's a, that's. Um, uh, uh, I think that was a mistake on his part. Yeah. Um, As for what das nichtige is. Describe the nothingness for me. So it really has to be understood in terms of uh, the doctrine of election, which, of course, he speaks about in Mm -hmm. 2.2. Das das nichtige is is that which God um, has not elected, has decisively passed over, um, um, to be the unwilled reality. Mm. It is the shadow side of, of creation, the shadow side of reality that exists by virtue of it being um, the unwilled, unelected mm. form of being. So he talks about it as having an impossible possibility. It, it, it doesn't really have any substantive um, reality or existence from the perspective of the divine because it is the very thing that God has chosen not to elect to exist but from our perspective as creatures he says it has the most powerful form of existence because it is the thing that would um uh, by by existing as that which god has chosen not to have any existence its compelling factor for us is because it is the very opposite of god mm-hmm. um hmm. is does that, does that
0: make these sort of monumentally tragic events in history sort of like an anti-revelation like a doesn't have to go rearing its head in some way that we can, uh, not not that it gives us any content about Jesus or, or anything yeah, like that, yeah, yeah. but so, sort of that something else is going mm-hmm.
1: on. How does that work? In so far as, um, in so far as such events. Um, When I don't to think that through. Hmm. Um I mean like so if if Jesus reveals
0: reality, is dust nictica, when, when we see dust nictica, does it uh does it reveal that there is a shadow side of something? Not that it can tell anything like that.
1: Yes, but it reveals the um the shadow side as the very antithesis of grace. Hmm um whatever whatever form of existence that is um it it is it it has only negative content um I think one of the things that um that Bart does say in 1938 uh, just after Kristallnacht um he speaks of of anti-semitism as the sin against the Holy Spirit, mm-hmm. which is actually a pretty powerful statement yeah, when you think about it. If that is the one sin that does not get forgiven, um, to speak of anti-Semitism in those terms is to raise it to a degree of seriousness that mm-hmm. um, uh, that certainly few people at the time were the granting it mm-hmm. but what I think that does is um it it it, um, it passes um anti-semitism as the very thing that denies the grace of God mm. um and insofar as it is the the antithetical denial of Grace and and therefore of election um is if it is revelatory of anything at all it is revelatory of pure defiance against god wow that's powerful well we're coming up to the end
0: of our time here um i want to finish with one fun question um lighten lighten the mood a little bit (laughs) um so i always end every episode it's really just a way for me to get some book recommendations uh with a little game of desert island um So the idea is that you are trapped on a desert island. You're allowed to have one book by Bart, one primary source. It cannot be the full church dogmatics, but if it is sold as a single book, you can take it. Um, And then one secondary source
1: as well. What two books are you taking and why? At the risk of being entirely predictable. the volume by Bart I will take is uh, two two of Dogmatics. Nice. The reason being, um, because it is so uh, entirely consumed with the doctrine of election, mm-hmm. and because that doctrine of election is is articulated by Bart. Uh, so beautifully Christologically it is for me the um, the volume that shouts loudest to me at mm. least of the, the sum of the gospel that 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 we participate in the community of God um not as individuals but in community um purely by grace mm. and and for me if, if there's one thing that the gospel says it's that. Um, and so I could read I could read that volume over and over again simply to be reminded that I am where I am um, in that participation in the divine community mm-hmm. simply because God said yes, Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> as for the second second source well you'll be pleased to know uh, I think
0: I haven't done too many episodes but it's this is surprising to me as well I think you might be the first
1: person to say it too oh well I'm so glad so there you go not, not as predictable <laughs> as you thought <laughs> as for the secondary text that's harder actually yeah it's harder
0: you can um, cheat and give me a couple, if, you, if, if you're deciding between a couple.
1: Uh, I'm going to say... I'm going to say Christiane Tietze's new biography, mm-hmm. um, Carl Barta, Life in Conflict. Amazing. Uh, And again, probably entirely predictably, um, uh, McCormack's critically realistic dialectical theology. Mm -hmm. For this reason, uh, for this reason. It demonstrates in, I think, a really helpful way, regardless of what you think about the trajectory in which Bart goes or indeed in which McCormack later takes his work on Bart, uh, irrespective of those questions, um, what Bruce does in that book really, really helpfully is demonstrate that um, Bart's thought changes. It evolves, it matures. Mm. Um too often I think we read Bart as though um, he was a contextual, that he wrote in a in a vacuum, mm-hmm. um and that the once you get beyond Romans, nothing much changes. Um Bruce's work demonstrates how greatly Bart's theology changes yeah. from from you know, before the Roman commentary in into the um, into the mid to late 30s. Um, and I think that's always a helpful uh, uh, just thing to thing to keep in mind, I'm a historical theologian, so my interest is the way is in the way in which um, church teaching and practice, evolve over time in their particular contexts so for me it's always important to see the way in which someone's own changing times inform the way they think theologically and for me um Bruce's book does that really successfully awesome that's great um that's definitely on the list um Bruce
0: if by some miracle you're listening you're on the list I just have to work my way up to you know, I, 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 I'm feeling like I, I don't want to walk in and having had read a couple of art books to, to interview Bruce. I wouldn't just I wouldn't take advantage of it like I should. Um, but uh, yeah, I really thank you so much for your time, your, oh, your you. willingness to do this. i of glad to make fun. Yeah. Thanks, Corey. Yeah. Awesome. Um, so, again, the book is Reading Auschwitz with Bart, the Holocaust as Problem and Promise for Barty Theology and Just for anyone who's listening right now, as I'm, as we're recording this, I checked it this morning. Uh, Princeton has a huge sale on ebooks right now. And, uh, this book is $299 US dollars on Kindle. Um, so go for it. Um, usually these books that, uh, for both this the Bonhoeffer podcast and the bar podcast tend to be like more Z black books. And like, you know, they're just difficult to get your hands on. Um, but this one is not, and it's a, it's a great read. So, um, so enjoy that. And uh, yeah, thanks again. This was fun. Thanks Corey. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Carl Barr podcast. If you enjoyed the episode, please leave a review in your podcast app. It will help others find the show. And if you have any feedback or questions, please feel free to reach out to me on Twitter. The handle is at Bart Podcast. That's all for me now. I'm excited to keep learning with you all. And I appreciate you listening. See you next time.